It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. In the days when the mob was operating in Las Vegas, the slogan would not have been, what happens here stays here, but more likely, what happens here doesn't stay here, especially if it's the skim. And part of that skim went to Milwaukee. What was the Vegas-Milwaukee connection? Well, my guest will explain all of that. He's Wayne Klingman, the author, along with Zach Long, of The Life and Times of Frank Ballesteri, the last most powerful godfather of Milwaukee. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. You can follow Wayne on Twitter, at the Milwaukee Mob. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, sir. It's a great honor. Well, I was interested in not only the book, but you do so many other things, which we'll talk about as we go through the show. What got you interested in the mob and Frank Bellisteri in particular? Well, Frank comes from Milwaukee. I'm a Wisconsin citizen, and I know very little about him before I started my research. And I was surprised so many other people didn't know about him either, but yet he had quite the role to play not only in Milwaukee, but as well, you know, sir, Las Vegas. And after I did my movie on him, and we did, uh, we got the Freedom of Information Act returns on him, I thought we had enough here to do a book, so I did. Now, you mentioned the movie that you did, the documentary. How did that come about before the book? You usually... Sometimes the book is before the documentary, but in either case, you decided to do the film. Why, again, was he of a particular interest to you versus anybody else in the mob? He's his own guy. He's, he's, he, if I may be so bold, I apologize for talking fast. I do that when I get excited. And being in your show has made my year. <laughs> um, nobody knows about him. I mean, we all know about Gotti. We all know about Al Capone. But here we have a guy in Milwaukee who may have blown up Frank Rosenthal, right? Right, and for our listeners who may not know who Frank Rosenthal was, Frank Lefty Rosenthal, he was a major figure in Las Vegas and was involved with Tony Spilatro and organized crime, and there was an attempt on his life, and the speculation was that it was Frank Ballesteri that was involved in that. So he has a connection to Las Vegas, and I, I opened the show with a discussion of the connection between Milwaukee and Las Vegas, but what was it about that connection between Las Vegas and Milwaukee, and frankly, Chicago as well. Absolutely. Well, Frank, may have, Godfather Frank, as I call him, may have had his own family in Milwaukee, but he answered to the outfit. So nothing he would be able to do with Major League, he could do on his own. He had to get permission, shall we say. I think this guy in Milwaukee ran the skim, brought millions of dollars of investment money to Argent because of our good friend Ellen Glick, Oh, let's, let's, totally, let's, let's let our listeners know that Argent Corporation were the owners of both the Stardust and the Fremont, and Alan Glick was a principal in Argent Corporation. So along the lines, I'll explain to some of our listeners who may not know the ins and outs as you do. Alan Glick was approached by, I believe, Frank, and set up a situation where he would, he would be the front guy for the mafia and the money that they would bring into Vegas via the Midwestern... Teamsters pension fund as investment money. Right, that financed the properties in Las Vegas. It did. And, right. and let me put a rest to it, something of falsehood. As many people think those investments were basically a waste of time, but no, those investments paid off handsomely. 
Well, they pay off handsomely because they have control of the skim. No, no, no. They pay off handsomely for the pension fund because the pension fund made money from those investments. Right, but also they also did good too. I mean, right. The map did very good. Yeah, right. That, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I apologize. No problem. I always assume that not everybody understands certain terms, and I introduced it without explaining what that term is. But could you give us a sense of what the skim was? What What sure. is the definition of the skim? I will define the skim as the money that was removed from the from the capital before, money removed from the income before it was reported for tax purposes. So, say a casino had a really good night and made say ten bucks. The man um, would take two or three bucks off the top of that before the rest of it, in this case $7, would be reported on income and taxed. They would put that money in their pocket. And it would go back to Milwaukee, Chicago, perhaps Kansas City, other places. Based on your research, how did the money get back there? In other words, was there a courier that would come yeah. once a week or once a month? Yes. Or? There was a courier, at least one. Documented evidence that, and her name escapes me, but at least one person would get an airplane, get in a train, and come to Chicago, come to Kansas City, come to Milwaukee. Here you go. Here's your money. And how often would that happen? Once a week. Once a week. That's amazing. Right, really Absolutely amazing. When you were researching the book, Wayne, did you get a chance to talk with, obviously those guys are not around anymore because of the period, but did you happen to talk to a son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter? I, I did, sir. I did, sir. I got to talk to Frank's surviving son. And what was that? What was that interview like? Would, did, would he acknowledge the material? Uh, let's say he was very, very unhappy. With you or with the material well, or with both? Myself and with myself and with the director of the documentary. In fact, okay. I thought we would have to call help to get him removed. My director, Jason Love, who's a terrific human being, thought that he was going to have a, um, a throwdown with him. I mean, the, the man went out of his way to be. Well, how, what's a good word for it? Let's say obnoxious. So did he, were, well, did he agree to go on camera or disagree? Oh, no, no, no. We invited him. We invited him to come on camera right. after we, we, it was a movie showing I didn't receive for free. And he showed up, which is fine. That's when he decided to get combative. And I said, I was able to take him aside and say, you have your own story to tell, right? I'd like to put you on camera. You can tell your own story. And we had to set up a day and a time for me to call him, to make those arrangements. I called, he never answered the phone. Well, those things happen. <laughs> Frank Ballesteri was interesting because he married into a mob family. Yes, sir. He, he, that's how he got the job. He, he married the boss's daughter. Well, that's a, um, that's, a, that's a very American way, isn't it? It is a very, very American way. And right away he thought he had the, the problem of there's elements in Kansas City and elements in Chicago that did not want him to have the job. So it took the Chicago outfit, in particular a man by the name of Milwaukee Phil, to make sure that was all smoothed down. But why was it that some elements did not want him to be the head guy? Let's say that Frank wasn't particularly very good to get along with. He wasn't a social person, in other words. No, not even. Most mob people may not be social people, but they know they have to get along with sometimes with other people. But Frank, you know, he had got the nickname the Mad Bomber, not because he was Mr. Nice, he wasn't nice. He wasn't pleasant to get along. And people took exception to him. They took exception to some of the things he said and some of the ways that he acted. So why get, let him have the job if we can find somebody else that we can get along with better? But obviously it was smoothed over and he became the, the head of the Milwaukee mob. 
absolutely. And that was, uh, I would like to, in my opinion, it was all due to the influence of the Chicago outfit and a man who worked for the Chicago outfit at the time who they referred to as Milwaukee Phil, who for a short time in his own right would be head of the outfit in Chicago. And the Chicago outfit was also part of the larger commission, so to speak, because I talked about this with a guest of mine a few weeks ago, where you had finally this organized crime on a national level. You had the commission, as they called it, among other names, and the disputes in the different jurisdictions would resolve sometimes by having to go to the commission. Yes, sir. That's the way up. An interesting point, too, is Frank, if it wasn't for the fact that the skin was busted, Frank had a good shot of being, uh, having a seat at that table. And yet, because the skin was busted and because he went to jail, he went to jail initially for income tax evasion. They didn't get him on other things the first time around, correct? Correct, sir, income tax evasion. Yeah, Yeah. and later on, there were other issues which he went back to jail again, too, and he tried to cut a deal. But because he was so ruthless and he had a lot of different names, Mr. Big, Mr. Slick, Mr. Fancy Pants, Mad Bomber, etc., did the people in Milwaukee know that it was him if you mentioned any of these names I just mentioned? I think they would know him as Fancy Pants. I think some elements might know him as a Mad Bomber. It all depends if you run with his restaurants or his nightclubs, which one you might know him best by. Right. When he controlled Milwaukee, how many different industries and businesses, if you give us a rough number, did he control? Well, he had, he had, a, he had bars. Um, he had some in his own name, some in other people's names. He had a vending machine business which was rather profitable, it is alleged by some that he helped that business become more profitable because at the time that he was running Milwaukee, there was a serious problem of trucks being hijacked on the interstate. And the idea would be, it was, it was alleged by others, that he would help himself to product and a cheap, you know, not go with a truck, take the stuff out of the truck, with sell the vending machines. Oh, well, that's one way to do it. Not legal, but that's one way to do it based on your research, was not only the head guy in Milwaukee, but his influence extended beyond that. Obviously, the connection with Las Vegas, but were there other areas that he had his fingers in? Not outside of Milwaukee and Vegas, no, sir. Okay, so those were, the, those were the two. So when he would come, would he come to Las Vegas? I believe he came to Las Vegas. I don't think he made it into the Black Book, but I, I really... Can't remember off the top of my head, but he did come to Vegas until obviously he went to jail for the second time. Right, and when he went to jail for the second time, my understanding is he cut a deal with the feds in order to supposedly get his son uh, either reduced or no sentence. Right, supposedly he cut a deal with the federal government where he would, I think he had to plead guilty and they would not prosecute his sons who were in jail for the vending machine racket because they would both go to jail for that, but they were not part of it. They were not part of the um, skim trials. Right. When he was operating, and he was ruthless, clearly by some of the names that he was given, but also, as you indicated earlier, that people were opposed to him assuming that position to begin with just because of he didn't play well with others. And because he was a ruthless guy, was he able to totally dominate the Milwaukee organized crime area, or were there competitors even while he was Mr. Big? There are competitors that did not last very long. I mean, I suspect, in my opinion, if you had a vending machine or two and you had a bar that you owned and he didn't know about it, he didn't really look out for that sort of situation. But there was no other vending machine companies 
able to do business in the city of Milwaukee. As nobody else, to my knowledge, was out there trying to put records in the jukeboxes or selling jukeboxes. The fact that he was able to operate that way would indicate that, obviously, the powers that be were paid off or some were paid off in order to allow him to function. No, sir, I would disagree with that. Oh, good. I would, sir. Milwaukee was the police force of Milwaukee and the mayors of Milwaukee at that time were much more trolled by the student addressed. We, if you remember Wounded Knee when the two FBI agents were shot? Yes. You know, those guns were traced back to Milwaukee. Um, so that's where the law enforcement I was focused was on that situation, the unrest. It, I can't speak to the law enforcement because um, they're long in the ground. Um, but um, it's my thought that they're more troubled with what was going on with, with the student unrest and the like than anything else. If I may, if I could please mention the book, Drawman, written by a man's name, Gary Magnuson, who was one of the FBI agents in charge of trying to find Frank and get him, put, him, put him away. So you're saying that the local authorities were not, or some of the local authorities were not necessarily bribed or paid off to look the other way? No, no, they're, they're, they're very, very concerned about the student unrest in the city of Milwaukee. It was a big, big issue. Right, no, I understand, but I would think you could do both. Well, <laughs> according to the police chief in the city of Milwaukee. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's take a break. My guest, Wayne Kligman, is author, along with Zach Long, of The Life and Times of Frank Ballesteri, The Last Most Powerful Godfather. Of Milwaukee. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. You can follow Wayne on Twitter at The Milwaukee Mob. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more talk about Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You think you know Vegas, but how much do you really know about this neon city? See the dark side of the bright lights at the Mob Museum where you can explore how a tough little town transformed into a gaming metropolis with a little help from organized crime. You won't find these stories of lawbreakers and law enforcement, mob bosses and prosecutors anywhere else. The Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. More information at themobmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Wayne Klingman. He's author along with Zach Long of The Life and Times of Frank Ballesteri, the last most powerful godfather of Milwaukee. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places, and you can follow Wayne on Twitter at The Milwaukee Mob. And Wayne, when I asked you about the influence of the mob and whether they were paying off local officials or local police officials, Etc. You said they were focused more on the, the student situation. But it would seem to me, though, that you can't operate in a jurisdiction, a city, a county, and just take it over without some people looking the, people in power looking the other way. Well, see, they, they, how can I put this? It's hard to speak for the dead. Um, but we look at Milwaukee as a blue-collar city, right? We, right. Have our, you know, we have drink every beer at home. We drink a beer at the corner bar. What dice game we play, it's between my friends. We're going to play some poker. It's, you know, a bunch of things, right? Nothing's really getting out of hand that-wise. Violence is kept between different mafioso people. The killings aren't necessarily taking place in Milwaukee, um, though there were a couple of car explosions. You know, the people being killed and injured were other mobsters, and perhaps the law enforcement set was thought at the time was, well, they're killing themselves, why do we care? 
Right. That seemed to be the typical understanding in a lot of cities. Yes, as, long, as long as civilians, citizens right. were not being killed or harmed, then they kind of let it happen. Right, because at the same time, the Hells Angels and the outlaws were having a war. And, um, at that, and so the problem with that one was, there was a, I think a young boy, I think he was 12 or 14, Paperboy picked up a package to put it in somebody's porch eight. You know, it was left paint by mistake. I'll be nice and put it in the porch here. And it blew up and it killed him. That upset people right off, big time. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I want to look at a 10-year period. So the feds got him initially, meaning Frank Ballesteri, got him initially for income tax evasion in 1967. And then an undercover agent went in. I guess it was 1977, otherwise known. Well, his real name was, I guess, Joseph Pistoni, but it was Donnie Brasco. And that's where Frank Ballesteri was arrested and charged with other crimes at that point. Correct? I think, I don't know. I believe he was arrested for everything after the skim went down. Okay. I thought off the top of my head. From your research and looking at Frank Ballesteri, what was your take on him? You were able to get a lot of material on him, and I, I saw a picture of him online, and he was very Natalie dressed, so to speak. Not Natalie Wood, but Natalie dressed. Was he always that way, or did he dress casual? Or in those days, you just dressed that way? I think in those ways, because he is a boss, that's the way he dressed. Image was everything. Right. I mean, I mean image, image... If you project the image that you want to have, that image often pays off. A man in a suit and a tie, in my opinion, can get farther than a person in ripped blue jeans and a dirty ratty shirt. It's just the way of the world. That's the way of the world. <laughs> now, what surprised me was, because we had talked briefly before we started the show, and you indicated that you had not been yet to Las Vegas. No, sir. And, and, and I'm troubled by that. You know, one... My good friend Derek Stevens opened up that great new hotel casino down there. Right, right. right. It's already open yeah. now. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing nothing but rave reviews. We have a great man in Vital Vegas who sings the praises of your most beautiful, lovely city. I have to go. If nothing more, if nothing more, there's all those dancing dealers that need to meet me. Mr. <laughs> Vital Vegas has been on the show a couple of times, Scott Rubin, and yeah, he, he writes a lot about Las Vegas. It has surprised me, because, especially with the connection between Las Vegas and Milwaukee, as you wrote about in your book. Were you able to talk to anybody in Las Vegas about the subject of Frank Bellisteri? Well, in fact, a couple of times. A man by the name of Larry Henry, who used to work in Las Vegas, who writes extensively about Las Vegas, runs a couple of really good Facebook groups. And, uh, one's called Las Vegas Map History, and the other one is called Mob Summit. And I would recommend both Facebook groups to all your listeners. He's been a big, big help in my other projects. Big, big help. I mean, I have to say that the true crime people who hang out or have situations going on in Vegas are some of the nicest people I've had the honor to meet, especially Mr. Henry. You were mentioning other projects. So you, not only did you do the documentary, not only did you write the book, and again, it's called The Life and Times of Frank Ballesteri, the last most powerful godfather of Milwaukee, but you also are writing books on table games as well. How did you get, that, how did you get interested in that subject? <laughs> Frank. Frank. I mean, if you, gotta, if you have to write, if you want to write about Frank, you get to know about Vegas. When you get to know about Vegas, you know about... I'm sorry, I'm speaking so fast. I do apologize. Um, you get to learn about the bright lights in the big cities, and those dancing dealers need tips. And what a better thing to do, as Mr. Big, 
as after I win that big hand at blackjack, when I clean out the house playing poker, then to give my dancing dealer a couple of black chips. That sounds good. Yes. They hacked that for some reason. So how did you decide what you would write about? In other words, you wrote about Frank Ballesteri, but you also are writing about table games. So how do you, in your, like, when you decide what you're writing about, how, did you, how does that come about? I'm try, just trying to get your writing process down here. Think of me as chaotic evil. If we're, it wouldn't be far from the mark. I, I get interested in different things when I write about them. I mean, Vegas table games is natural because of Frank, and I do want to go there. I want to meet Vital Vegas. I want to meet the, my, my girlfriend online, Heather Ferris. You know, those sort of things that I need to know about table, Vegas table games. I mean, I wrote about, the, I'm running, finishing up the book on the, the Buffalo Mafia because I, I came across enough documentation to digest that the Buffalo Mafia never went away. They simply went underground where they could be hidden and safe. Interesting. When you wrote the book on Frank Ballesteri, you wrote it, uh, as I mentioned, with Zach Long. So how do you guys divide the, the labor there? How do, who does what? Sure. I gather the research materials and give, give guidance to what I want to see happen. He makes it make sense because I write poorly, uh, very, very poorly, if you read my Twitter. I write very poorly. I have a lot of misspellings. I have a severe learning disability. And Zach Long was able to work with me to overcome what I couldn't do it myself. So it turns out to be a good partnership. I, wonderful. I can't speak. I've been, if I may be so bold, I've been really, truly blessed by the people I've gotten to meet because of Frank. I mean, Frank might be long dead on the ground, and one day you have to justify his actions, as we all might have to do in front of our maker. But I met so many wonderful people because of Frank. Be it Zach Long, be it my designer, be it my designer Sean, be it my, um, the guy that did my audio book. I mean, all wonderful, wonderful people. Heather Ferris, Vital Vegas, you. You well, know. one of the places you'll have to definitely go to when you come out here is the Mob Museum. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that um, perhaps you know, the Mob Museum got a phone call from you. I think, I'm thinking this. I think you've told them, but you know, I wrote that book and Frank, and they all have cars, right? They don't seem blown up. They might want to invite me down and, on their dime and speak. Yes, well, they, I think they follow you on Twitter. They do. They do, but that's, that's that phone call from you that will do that. <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm the middleman here. <laughs> I, I'm going to take the skim off of whatever they pay you. How about yeah, that? Absolutely. <laughs> right. So tell us your background, because I always find it interesting when I talk to writers and, and people that are interested in certain subjects, how they came about in their career. In other words, what, were you, when you were growing up, were you interested in the mob at all, or has it just become something that you were interested in later on in life? Later on, I became, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, right? I went to the Army, I got married, got divorced, all that other thing. I ended up running the cable station for Racine, Wisconsin, cable commissioner, where I picked up filmmaking and television production. I recently started a film consulting company helping law enforcement get a better how it works, right? So many people do a film or do a TV show and don't understand the basics of law enforcement. I'm trying to change that. But I had an opportunity with a good friend of mine, Jason Love, to do a documentary on Frank, which we, so we did it. You know, it wasn't, I mean, best thing of all, best thing of all, if I may say so, is I made my money back in less than six months. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. When you, but you also, didn't you also start a film festival there? I did. I, I, I did. And the <laughs> easiest way to lose money is you start a film festival. The first one I did called, it came from Lake Michigan, ran for two years, 
it cost me got twenty thousand dollars. I could I would have had a better time if I went to Las Vegas and dumped it playing crafts. Well, I've started, the way to get around that is I started a non-film festival, and I charged $10 a ticket, but there was no film, so I made a lot of money, no overhead. Oh, <laughs> well, we redid the film festival as um, any film in Wisconsin, but the flu put a stop to that. I mean, because only here, we, uh, the city that we have it in doesn't know the regulations have a film, you know, they can show a film one day to the next. Right. But nobody knows, maybe the flu's the flu, nobody can change that. But, you know, but film is cool. I enjoy films. I enjoy TV. Um, I've even acted a couple of things. Well, that's why I wanted to get our audience to get a sense of who you are and, and who you were growing up, too, as well. So that, that explains a lot. And I want to go back to, because we're almost done, but I wanted to go back to the research you did for Frank Ballesteri, both for the documentary and the book. From your point of view, what was the most unusual thing you found out about him that people would not know? the old TV show Star Trek? Star Trek, yes. You remember the um, communication officer? Yes. She danced for him for a bit. Really? Yes. In Milwaukee? In Milwaukee. She wrote about her biography. Oh, yeah. well, all right. But see, but if it's in her biography, then everybody would read it and know that. I'm asking from the research you did in general that people may not have access. Because... Okay, here you go. Yeah. Um, the Milwaukee police were going to go and arrest him. Come and visit Frank at his hotel. And Frank just so they didn't want them, them come to visiting. So there's a tape recording of Frank talking to his sons about what should they do. Should they call up some of the, his boys and have a gunfight or what? And the sons talk him down on that one. So the next brilliant idea is to take the fire hoses and blow them out of the building with fire hoses. So they had a recording of it where they, uh, they, they had a wiretap going. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right. In fact, the FBI had illegal wiretaps and... Um, the head of the FBI, I, uh, I can't I can picture him, I just can't think of his name offhand. Made him take him, take him out and destroy the evidence, because it's illegally gained. So what did they decide to do, though? Did they do the hose? Or did, what's that? You know, just give up. Oh, they just gave up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I mean Frank, would, Frank would get angry over little things. And sometimes, like, he did a quote that he was, he was upset with someone who he supposedly was saying nasty things about him behind his back, and he blew up in a car. Frank said something to the effect of, yeah, this guy made fun of me behind my face, behind my back, and now they can't find his face. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, Frank had a temper. Frank was unashamed of his temper. Before I let you go, what's your next project? Well, after the Buffalo Mafia, called Buffalo Mab, Mafia, which should be out by mid-November, I'm unsure. I think my next project will be going to Vegas and seeing where the film consulting goes. And I think from your perspective, living in Milwaukee, that your perception of Las Vegas would be different than others. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking Bright Lakes, Big City. I'm thinking Mr. Big would say, call me up here now because of my line of Mr. Big talks, Vegas table gaming, right? I walk off that plane in my suit and out comes my good friend Derek Stevens owns the D, right? He'll greet me, we'll get in his limo, we'll drive up to his place, and he'll have a line of dancing dealers. <laughs> well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Wayne Klingman, the author along with Zach Long of The Life and Times of Frank Ballesteri, the last most powerful godfather of Milwaukee. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places, and you can follow Wayne on Twitter at The Milwaukee Mob. Wayne, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, sir. Pleasure and honor. See you next time. 
You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Happy.